Hey, everybody. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. I hope you had a good weekend. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Today, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. Much of life has returned to pre-COVID normal. In several of her recent essays in the Washington Post, Dr. Wen has written about new research into the vexing problem of long COVID, the decision by the Biden administration to end the COVID emergency, how to help the immunocompromised, and how to more accurately account for the actual number of hospitalizations and fatalities that have been caused by COVID. Dr. Wen has also written about a new set of guidelines concerning childhood obesity and the refusal of drug companies to make a life-saving overdose medication more accessible. We'll talk about these topics, and Dr. Wen will answer your questions today on Midday. To join us, we're at 410-662-662. 8780. You can email us midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday wipr. Lena Wen is one of America's most trusted and knowledgeable public health experts, and we are proud and grateful that she has been a regular guest on our show for many years. She's a former health commissioner of Baltimore and an emergency physician. She teaches at the George Washington University School of Public Health. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a medical analyst on CNN, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the author of a book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And Dr. Wen joins us on Zoom. Hey, Lena, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Great to join you as always. Always great to have you. So um, is it legitimate, uh, accurate for me to say that, you know, we're sort of back to pre-COVID normal? Uh, I'm thinking about uh, a piece I read, an essay by uh, a doctor named Eric Topol, uh, who tweets a lot about COVID and other things. He's a cardiologist, I guess, by training. Um, he wrote in the Washington Post that we've moved from complacency to frank capitulation at just the wrong time. The world has let its guard down on COVID-19 uh, and the latest dominant form, this XBB.1.5 makes clear that we're doing so just as the virus finds new ways to hurt us. Uh, Have we let our guard down prematurely? I think it depends on how this question is being asked and in what context. And so a lot of this debate, for example, has centered on President Biden last week saying that there is going to be an end to the national emergency around COVID-19. He said that as of May 11th, there's going to be an end to this um, state of, uh, of emergency. And I think that there is a misunderstanding that the end of the emergency means the end of COVID, which is clearly not true. I mean, there are still, um, the CDC is recording more than 280,000 new infections from COVID um, every week. And that's almost certainly an undercount because of the number of home tests being done. And so COVID is by no means over. But I think we do have to say that we are at a different phase of the pandemic compared to before. We are at a very different phase compared to 2020 or 2021, even 2022. We now know that COVID is going to be with us, that this is something that we don't have a chance of eradicating. We have a lot better vaccines and treatments than we did before. We have a better, we have a better understanding um, of, um, of the coronavirus. 
But there's a long way to go when it comes to increasing surveillance. So I think part of what Dr. Topol said, I definitely agree with. We want to have better surveillance for new variants and new viruses. And I think the focus from now on and what I've been writing about in my recent post articles has been on how the focus needs to shift from protecting everyone from COVID when actually most Americans have moved on from thinking about COVID as a daily concern. We need to shift that focus to protecting the most vulnerable, identifying individuals, for example, the elderly with chronic medical conditions or the immunocompromised. These are individuals who are still vulnerable to severe outcomes from COVID-19. And instead of saying that we need to devote resources for everyone to protect against COVID, I think we need to say, how can we develop better vaccines and better treatments for this vulnerable group? What are the things that we can do as low-risk people to protect the high risk among us? And in a sense, this is not different from what we do for any other illness. When we talk about cancer or HIV or heart disease, we don't say that everyone is at equal risk because we're not. But we do say that for individuals at high risk, for individuals who are diagnosed with these conditions, for people who need treatment for these conditions, we should devote resources for those individuals. And I hope that that is how we conceptualize COVID going forward, too. And let's see what the president has to say about that, if anything at all, tomorrow night when he gives his State of the Union address, because, um, you know, if the country has, in fact, moved on from COVID-19, Congress has moved on, too. Uh, The the president's requests for continued funding and vaccine development uh, and surveillance and this kind of stuff uh, have been met with with a blind a blind ear and a blind eye by Congress. They are they are getting out of the business of funding uh, a response to the covid epidemic. Yes, and that is a major mistake. We are now in a situation where we have limited treatments. So we still have the antiviral Paxlovid, which is very effective, but there are some people who are not eligible for it because of other medical conditions that they might have. There are mono, there were monoclonal antibodies that were authorized for treatment as well as for prevention of COVID, but the FDA has revoked these authorizations based on those antibodies no longer being effective against new variants. Um, we still have remdesivir, which unfortunately is administered as an injection, and so it's just less available to individuals um, to help to prevent them from from getting severely ill. And so, when we have a situation where such where treatments are quite limited, we need need a lot more. And we also need development of better vaccines, including ideally nasal vaccines that prevent transmission, pan-coronavirus vaccines that target more than just one or two variants at a time. I mean, there's we need a lot more research into this. And I've been saying for the last year that Congress has Congress really learned nothing from this pandemic, that prevention is the best medicine, that we have to invest in um, in the infrastructure, including in public health infrastructure to help in the future. But I think given that this that this is the environment that President Biden finds himself, I mean, the um, the House of Representatives actually just passed um, um, uh, legislation this week saying that they want to abruptly end the state of emergency declaration. And I think that had President Biden not said um, that there would be an end uh, in May, and he not forecasted that there would be an exact end, I think that his hand could have been forced and an abrupt end would be totally catastrophic because there are a lot of flexibilities and regulations that have been given to hospitals and insurers around health insurance coverage, around um, around billing, around telemedicine, as an example, 
And there needs to be time to figure out what to do once the state of emergency ends. And so avoiding disruption to the healthcare system um, needs to happen. And I think, you know, I, I think it's a it's a it's a huge disappointment to say the least that Congress is not funding the Biden administration's request. But I also don't think that extending the state of emergency would have helped matters here. And uh, ending the state of emergency does have very specific consequences um, for a, a lot of people. Let's talk a little bit about Medicaid. There are some 90 million people, I guess, who were enrolled in Medicaid who may be taken off the Medicaid rolls uh, once the COVID emergency uh, goes out of uh, effect. As you said, uh, the president has announced that that's going to happen on May 11th. So he's given people uh, and public health institutions and, and hospitals, et cetera, a long time to figure out uh, how to adjust. But why is it that Medicaid uh, recipients uh, are, are so directly affected by uh, an emergency declaration for COVID-19? Yeah, so part of the emergency declaration was to extend the flexibilities around Medicaid coverage. And so individuals on Medicaid during the emergency would not be kicked off um, because there would be a redetermination of whether they're eligible for Medicaid. And so um, the Department of Health and Human Services, our federal health and human services, estimates that as many as 15 million low-income Americans could lose their health insurance when the Medicaid coverage flexibility disabilities end. And many of these individuals are actually still eligible for Medicaid. But let's say that somebody moved and didn't get their mail, or somebody just looked at their mail, but got really busy and didn't think that this message was was particularly important. I mean, the estimate also is around 6 million people are actually still eligible for Medicaid, but could be being kicked off because of these administrative barriers. And so states have begun the work of trying to prevent these individuals who are actually eligible from getting kicked off and helping individuals who may no longer be eligible but could be eligible for other forms of health insurance, including marketplace plans. And so that type of work is critically important. I mean, you know, I think it's it's a lot of people have said, look, these public health emergencies should not be the panacea for what's wrong with our healthcare system. And that's true. These public health emergencies were never intended to go on forever. But it would also be a great tragedy for millions of people to lose health insurance, not just for purposes of COVID, but because we know that not having health coverage is detrimental to people's health. And the other uh, issue, and you and I have talked about this uh, a little bit uh, in previous uh, appearances on the show, has to do with the credibility of the public health system itself. Um, because if we keep calling this a national emergency, and you wrote about this in the post, uh, when there's another one, uh, a true national emergency, the way COVID was at the very beginning, uh, people just simply won't won't believe public health officials because it, it, it's it's the uh, you know the the, the crying wolf uh, syndrome that that people will just say, oh, we've heard about this before. It, w it wasn't true then. It's not true now. I mean, the credibility and uh, and getting people to to adhere to public health recommendations is a real real problem and a real danger looking ahead, isn't it? That's exactly right. We cannot be telling people that it's always a five alarm fire because when people are no longer perceiving it to be an emergency, but you're telling them that it's an emergency, 
then are they going to believe you next time when they say, when you say that um, that everybody needs to mask up and avoid social interactions? I mean, are they going to listen if you've been saying this for the last three years and they're no longer living as if um, as if we're in that crisis? And so that's um, I, I think for that reason also it makes sense for. Um, for public health guidance to also align with where the public is. That actually is a core tenet in public health, that you should meet people where they are. And if you don't, there are really serious consequences for not only this crisis, but for future ones. It's the Midday Health Watch with my guest, Dr. Lena Wen. She's a columnist for The Washington Post. She's a commentator on CNN. She's a public health scholar in Washington at George Washington University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Our number, 410 our email is midday at wypr.org. If you want to drop us a tweet, it's at midday wypr. So, Lena, what are the other consequences when it comes to um, some of the, the therapeutics and the vaccines that are currently available for free uh, because the federal government is paying for them? So uh, when, when it comes to getting a prescription for Paxlovid, if you've been diagnosed with COVID, or uh, if it comes to uh, when it comes to things like getting a booster, getting a bivalent booster, there's, there's an awful lot of people who haven't gotten their boosters. Uh, the uptake of boosters much, much lower than the uptake for uh, the first uh, iterations of the vaccines. Um, how is that going to change? What's your expectation in that regard? Are we going to have to start paying for those vaccines? Uh, vaccines uh, looking ahead? Well, what's going to happen is that COVID is going to end up as we think about all other medical conditions, which I again recognize that there is a major problem in our country when it comes to paying for healthcare, that we have a very broken system. But at the same time, for all the reasons we've discussed, there has to come to a point where COVID is no longer being treated differently from other ongoing medical diseases, including cancer, HIV, the flu, etc. And so what's what has been happening is that COVID has been treated in this very different category. And so vaccines, treatments, and so forth are offered free of charge. The government has been purchasing the vaccines and distributing it free. Now, things are going to shift to insurers the same way that it is for any other health issue. And so people who have private insurance, their insurance would now pay for their boot boosters or their treatments. Um, and the question then comes, well, what about people who don't have health insurance? I would hope that vaccines are still going to be widely available for those individuals. And I would think that that's going to be a priority going forward. I don't think that this is going to be a challenge, mainly because um, the uptake of, of the boosters for, um, as, as you were saying, is actually pretty low. Um, only 15%, 15% of eligible Americans have received the bivalent booster. And so it's not as if th this is in short supply and is difficult to, to obtain. But I think that there are questions remaining about treatment for the uninsured. Um, and I, I think a lot of hospitals, too, have suffered a lot from COVID. Um, and um, they are still they still haven't gotten their footing. Um, we still are facing huge issues around shortage of healthcare workers, in particular nurses. Burnout among healthcare pro providers is at a high, and so figuring out those issues over time have to be a priority too. And there are going to be many other impacts too. Uh, you mentioned telehealth; uh, those regulations have been extended by Congress, but uh, who knows if they'll stay extended? Um, there's going to be an impact on people getting SNAP benefits. Uh, 
what's going on at the border. We've you know, heard a lot about Title 42 and uh, public health dimension of the uh, of the immigration crisis. So the other thing I want to talk about is long COVID. There are some studies about that. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about that. Dr. Lena Wen as a columnist for The Washington Post, a contributor at CNN, a public health scholar at George Washington University, a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And coming up on the other side of a quick break, we will continue the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen and you, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday, WIPR. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, the as the first week of Black History Month comes to a close, the controversy over the teaching of black history rages on. Florida wants to restrict it. So what's going on here in Maryland? We'll talk about it tomorrow here on Midday with a teacher of African-American studies at Poly High School, Patrice Frazier. Uh, she's involved teaching the AP Black History course in a pilot version. So we'll talk about her experience with her students at Poly High School and some other folks about the teaching of black history. If you've just joined us today, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. Her latest book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. It is a terrific memoir and an important treatise on what public health can and should look like in the United States. I recommend it highly. Dr. Wen's a former health commissioner here in Baltimore. She's a scholar at George Washington University and the Brookings Institution. She's also a columnist for the Washington Post and a medical analyst and commentator on CNN. To join us, we're at 410-662-8780. You can email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday wipr. So, Lena, you wrote about uh, three new studies uh, on long COVID. So throughout this pandemic, when you and I talk, we always mention long COVID. And uh, there's a lot of uh, information we don't know about long COVID in terms of uh, even how we define it. Uh, it's still not uh, really a matter of, of, of complete consensus about what long COVID means. But these new studies, uh, I guess, are shedding a little bit of light on, on the, this very vast subject. What do you think? Yeah, there's definitely still a lot that we don't know. And part of my article in the Post was arguing for how we need to be thinking about classification of long COVID depending on severity of symptoms. Because right now, the estimates of how many people have long COVID is really wide. The range is really wide. The CDC is estimating around 20% who contract COVID have long COVID um, versus a large British study was estimating around 3%. So 3%, 20%, very different. And I think part of that, the reason for this discrepancy is that there's a big difference between people who have a persistent cough 
or an intermittent headache, something that's annoying and not pleasant, but is not debilitating the same way that somebody who has such bad fatigue, they can't work or such severe shortness of breath that they can't even walk a block and they were previously a healthy athlete. I mean, these are very different types of spectrum of symptoms. And I think we really need to classify long COVID or at least post COVID symptoms um, as mild, moderate or severe. One of the studies also that I cited talked about classification based on types of symptoms, which I think can also help because it's it seems very it seems to be the case that long covid constitutes this wide array of symptoms and understanding more about what certain types of symptoms for example if somebody primarily has musculoskeletal issues versus circulatory issues what does that mean when it comes to prognosis and treatment now there was one recent study that i thought was particularly important um, from british medical journal it's a nationwide study from israel they looked at children and adults who had post-COVID symptoms. Now, the bad news here is that they found that post-COVID symptoms are very real, that for the first six months, the people who had COVID compared to people who did not have COVID had a higher likelihood of symptoms like cough, shortness of breath, palpitations, and muscle aches. But by 12 months after the diagnosis, the differences were mostly gone, meaning that most people who developed post-COVID symptoms were back to their pre-COVID health within a year. So I think that that's reassuring news in a sense that most people will have their symptoms, um, uh, their post-COVID symptoms resolve in a year. But I think it also points to the fact that there are some people who do not. And some people, again, who have these severe, debilitating, persistent symptoms. And these are the individuals who need our help and support. And by having a better definition and characterization of who these individuals are, I think that allows us to, again, zero in on people who need our help the most, as opposed to saying, well, everybody's at risk for, for long COVID and everybody needs help equally. That's just not true. We need to figure out who are the most vulnerable and target our interventions accordingly. You referenced a study in The Lancet. Uh, about the difference between people who contracted coronavirus in the Omicron wave as opposed to the Delta wave. There does seem to be a difference there when it comes to long COVID, according to a study uh, in The Lancet. Can you tell us what they found? Yeah, actually, that study was quite striking because they found that people who contracted COVID during the Omicron wave were about half as likely to develop post-COVID symptoms compared with those who contracted the coronavirus in the Delta wave. And so there are two possible explanations. One is that Omicron may just be less severe. We already know that Omicron is less lethal than Delta. Maybe Omicron by itself, this new variant or this variant that's now dominant, results in a lower likelihood of developing long COVID as well. The other possibility is that maybe your likelihood of developing long COVID is reduced after having a prior exposure to COVID or vaccination or both. Um, because Omicron occurred after Delta, and of course, many more people became infected during the Omicron wave. So either of these explanations, I think, would actually be good news. Now, that again, I you know, I know some people listening to this might say, well, um, well, long COVID is very serious. And in no way am I saying that we should downplay long COVID. 
but rather than there is this hunger, I think, for from the public to better understand at least what I'm hearing from my patients, to better understand, well, how should I think about long COVID? How serious is this? How likely is this going to be for me to, to develop long COVID? And I don't think they're referring to annoying symptoms like a cough or a mild headache that will be gone after six months. I think they're referring to this severe, debilitating long COVID that's going to change their lives. And so getting a handle on how common this is and then finding treatments to that severe long COVID, I think ultimately is what's going to provide better information for people about how much they want to keep on avoiding the coronavirus in their lives. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest is Dr. Lena Wen, and it's the Midday Health Watch, 410-662-8780, or email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So, Lena, we have a couple of emails from uh, two folks in their 70s, separate emails. One is Margaret, who's 75, the other Michael, who's 72. And they both basically say the same thing. They have the same question. It's a question we get virtually every time you're on the show. And I want to repeat it and ask you to respond to it, because I do think the way you frame the answer to this question um, is so important and so uh, enlightening. Margaret says, I'm 75 with a medicated heart condition and controlled diabetes. I still mask in any public setting indoors with more than four people. Sometimes I'm the only one with a mask. So far, I've never tested positive for COVID. Right now, I feel my main threat of infection is indoor dining. Am I right uh, to see indoor dining as a main threat. And then Michael says, I'm 72 years old and have various health concerns. I'm up to date with COVID vaccinations, the most recent of which was the Pfizer bivalent in September. I'm afraid of contracting COVID. What do you suggest? Yeah, these are both excellent questions. And it's what I talk about with my patients all the time, which is that people should gauge what is their own risk from severe illness due to COVID, and then also think about how much they want to keep on avoiding COVID period. And I think these are separate questions. And so individuals should look at their own medical history, their age, speak with their doctor also, because um, they because medical con- conditions are additive. And so if you have um, four or five medical issues that are severe, that's that gives you a higher risk than, than, you have, than if you have one. But on the other hand, if you have, for example, mild asthma, that's not really a condition that makes you more likely to have severe COVID. And some people may mistakenly think that, that that it is. And so speak with your doctor, understand what is your risk for severe COVID, and then have a plan for what you can do to reduce that risk. So if you were to contract COVID, how can you reduce your risk of progressing to severe COVID? Are you eligible for Paxlovid? If not, can you get remdesivir? Um, uh, and of course, being up to date on, on your vaccines, getting the bivalent vaccine will also reduce that risk of progression to severe illness as well. So that's the first question. The second question is, how much do you want to avoid COVID period? There are some individuals who any viral illness, including a cold, might push them over the edge. They're so medically frail that they want to avoid any medical illness. That does not sound to be the case with the two people who wrote in, but there are certainly individuals in that category who want to avoid any medical illness. Then there are others who just really don't want to get COVID. Maybe they're afraid of the possibility of long COVID. Maybe they live with somebody who is extremely medically frail. um, And those individuals want to avoid COVID, period. Um, But again, how much do you want to avoid COVID 
might depend on what else you're willing to give up. And so the question about indoor dining, um, I think there are some indoor dining spaces that are safer than others. Um, you can go to a restaurant that ha that is, well, obviously that's outdoors, but even if it's indoors, but you're well-spaced away from other people, your risk is not from the other diners, but who you're dining with. And so you could certainly become infected from the people that you're going to dine with yourself. Um, but if you're going to dine with them at your house anyway, then dining together in a restaurant probably is not going to give you higher risk than, than, than dining with them in your home. I think that if you're particularly concerned about contracting COVID, wearing a mask when in indoor public spaces is still a, a, a good idea. Um, and, and I think for people going forward, they really need to gauge what is their own risk tolerance when it comes to trying to avoid COVID. And if it's Avoiding COVID versus avoiding severe illness, there are different steps to be taken to try to prevent that outcome. This is completely anecdotal. This is not a scientific study by any means. But as it turns out, last Thursday, I heard from six friends, uh, five in Baltimore, one in the Netherlands, that they had tested positive for COVID. One uh, was uh, two, two people were having COVID for the second time, the others uh, having it for the first time. And they were really quite frustrated and, and, and mad at the world that uh, they had uh, they were no longer in the uh, I've never had COVID uh, camp. Um, but I wonder, is this, do you think, a uh, an indication of a post-holiday surge? Is this just indicative of this uh, newest variant of Omicron, which is so much more uh, infectious, I guess, or, or transmissible than, than prior versions? None of these folks uh, are particularly sick. They all have what uh, amounts to, you know, bad colds. Um, and, and, and they all expect to be uh, feeling perfectly fine uh, within a few days. But uh, is there uh, in the month of February, the month of March, uh, something to be concerned about in terms of uh, increased transmissibility and increased numbers of COVID cases? We're actually seeing a decline in the number of cases overall in the country. Now, depending on where you are in the country or the world, of course, different communities have different tra transmission trends, and there might be some communities where the rate of COVID is going up for, for whatever reason. I think that what you, the examples that you gave point to a bigger issue or to a bigger trend, which is that in what we've been discussing for multiple months now, Tom, which is that we are all going to get COVID. And in fact, we're probably likely to get COVID every year or even multiple times a year that people who want to avoid that really need to take um, quite extraordinary precautions. Now, it's not impossible to do, but um, I think we need to see getting COVID regularly as a new normal of sorts. Now, I know that many people don't want to hear that, but I also think that this is part of accepting that COVID is going to be with us. Um, there was recently an, um, an op-ed in Stat News um, written by Robert Gallo, a virologist here um, in, in Baltimore, uh, along with um, along with a couple of other epidemiologists and virologists that I thought was really interesting. It talked about how we are we should move out of this phase of avoiding exposure to living with the virus. 
and that specifically we should be separating out the recommendations for low-risk individuals versus high-risk individuals, and um, that the federal health officials should focus on recommendations for how low-risk individuals can coexist with high-risk individuals. So, for example, what do you do when there are low-risk children who live in the same household as high-risk grandparents? What what should you do in that that particular circumstance? I, I think that this is part of the acceptance of this new normal, that for most Americans, avoiding COVID is extraordinarily hard because the more transmissible the variant that we're dealing with, the harder it is going to be to avoid it. And we are having more and more transmissible variants. But that said, there are some individuals who are extremely vulnerable still, and the focus needs to be on protecting those individuals. And so how do you allow, if you will, most Americans to move on with their lives while really putting the focus on the most vulnerable? I think that's our that's the transition point where we're at. And I actually hope that this is something the Biden administration will be more forthcoming in discussing in exactly these terms. Let's see if we can get a couple more, a uh, couple of uh, phone calls in before we need to let let you go. Uh, Betsy in Baltimore, welcome to Midday with Dr. Wen. Oh, hello. Thank you. And what's your quick question? question? Yeah, my question is, do we know how long um, natural immunity lasts after we have COVID? I'm vaccinated, boosted, and had COVID for the first time for 10 days before Christmas. I'm just wondering how long I can ride the immunity on it. That's a great question. And um, you, Betsy, have not just natural immunity, but you have hybrid immunity because you have you actually have the strongest level of protection, which is the combination of recovery from COVID as well as vaccination. Now, there are studies that have shown that um, it, we, we would expect that, that that hybrid immunity would last at least three months, probably six months. And there are some studies that have shown that it, it still provides excellent protection after a year. Now, the excellent protection is um, strongest against um, against severe illness, but there probably is still very good protection even at a year against symptomatic illness. Now, you could still get reinfected again, of course, but um, I, I think that individuals who recently got infected should not be rushing to get another booster at this time. And one more quick question from Brenda calling in from Ellicott City. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Wen, and we're almost out of time with Dr. Wen, so uh, what, what's on your mind real quick? Okay, so uh, we, we're high risk. We have had the hybrid booster in September. Are they going to allow us to get another booster? Because it's my understanding that immunity will only last four to six months at best for people who have never had COVID. This is the number one question that I'm getting asked these days. What I would say is federal health officials have not yet authorized a second bivalent booster for people who got the first one. I really hope that they will, because there are a lot of people in your position who got a bivalent booster in September. So it's already been five months. I think giving them the option to have a second booster would be a good idea, but they have not yet issued those recommendations. What I would recommend for you is the major concern is severe illness. Protection against severe illness is probably still strong after five months, but know that there are other ways to reduce your risk risk of severe illness too. So make sure you have a plan for what happens if you get COVID, including um, Paxlovid if you're eligible and Remdesivir if you're not. Dr. Lena Wen is a former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and the author of Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. She's a columnist for The Washington Post, a commentator on CNN, and a great friend of this show. Thank you so much, Lena. I very much appreciate it and stay safe. Thank you, Tom. 
Coming up, it was a Promise of Peace weekend this past weekend. We'll talk with the organizers of these events, Erica Bridgeford and Leatrice Gant. They join me after a quick break. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR.